Welcome to The Near Memo, a weekly conversation about search, social, and commerce. What happened, why it matters, and the implications for local. All right. Welcome, everybody, to episode 29 of The Near Memo. Um, do-over edition because we had some technical trouble last time. And so um, we're doing this again. Uh, I'm Greg Sterling. I'm here with David Mim and Mike Blumenthal. As always, we talk about search, social, and commerce, top stories of the week, things that struck us and were interesting. And we've got some interesting things to talk to you about today, Uh, Facebook and the FTC, um, an interesting call rail survey on small business and their attitudes toward digital marketing, and then, of course, uh, Mary Mellis wrote a great piece this week um, on uh, local food delivery, local co-op, and we'll be talking about that as well. But first, Mike, you had the, the, our lead story on uh, Facebook and the FTC. So Thursday afternoon, they released a press release, and they announced that they had amended their complaint that details how the monopolist Facebook survived existential threats by illegally acquiring innovative competitors. The headline is FTC alleges Facebook resorted to illegal buy or bury scheme to crush competition after a string of failed attempts to innovate. innovate. It was a very in-your-face, uh, assertive statement of Facebook's failings. Uh, this is in light of the court previously finding that they had not proven that Facebook was, in fact, a monopoly, and they obviously are going to go back and try to prove that. And they're contending both consumer and other business harm with this behavior of buy or bury where Google or excuse me, <laughs> Facebook in their lack of innovation uh, in 2010s was forced to buy a WhatsApp and Instagram in order to maintain their sort of dominating lead in the social space. Um, whether they're successful or not depends on whether I guess the court agrees with how they define the monopoly. I know, Greg, that you read a little bit of the of the filing. Maybe you could sort of parse for everybody how they're how the FTC well, is defining the business space that they're operating. Yeah. So I, I have to disclaim my comments by saying that I'm not an antitrust lawyer, nor do I play one on TV. And um, but <laughs> but you did stay I, at a Holiday Inn Express once. <laughs> I, I did. I don't know. I, I'm not getting that joke. What is the context? That's uh, an ad of that? campaign from Holiday Inn Express. Uh, anyway, oh, that's, oh, that's fine. Bad joke. Right. Go ahead. Uh, well, I, I hadn't seen the campaign, but um, I was specifically looking at the complaint to to see how they were handling YouTube. That was the sort of my specific purpose, because YouTube, as we as we wrote um, this uh, this Friday. You know, there's a there was a, a report that sort of t- talked about time spent with social media, and it shows there's you know seven or eight networks, and they get a lot of consumer time, and it makes it look like the uh, the space is pretty pretty competitive from a certain point of view. YouTube, I think, I think is a is a kind of an x x factor x variable here because you can define them as a social social network, or you can define them as a video site. And the FTC in the complaint tries to define them as a video site more akin to Netflix than to Facebook. And Facebook will want to do the opposite and say, look, YouTube is this massive site. It has all this millions and millions of users, um, you know, and it's and it's it's worth competing with them. And so I think this is an issue for, for the court to grapple with and how the court comes down may be impactful in terms of the the deciding whether they're a monopoly or not. Um, and as David, you've pointed out that, you know, we, we've got Pinterest, we've got TikTok, we've got, Inst- well, Instagram is owned by Facebook, TikTok, Pinterest, 
uh, Snapchat, um, LinkedIn, Twitter. I mean, I think all, right. all of these have substantial installed user bases themselves. And, and I would argue that, you know, TikTok are, has evolved social media in a way that everyone else is now sort of playing catch up to with knockoff uh, feature sets, but that there is still, there does still seem to be room for innovation in social media um, in a way that I don't think that exists in search uh, with respect to Google. There are plenty of other search engines that are, you know, almost as good as Google, but I, they're not, they're not growing user bases at nearly the same rates that uh, these sort of newer social entrants are. So I think it's it's a little harder case for the FTC to make that Facebook is a monopoly in social media, even if you don't include YouTube uh, in the mix. Um, I think that the argument would be a little bit easier with, with respect to Google and search. That's sort of a surgical argument, though, right? Facebook has 2.9 billion monthly users globally. WhatsApp has 2.1 billion. Instagram has 1.1 billion. I mean, we're talking... You know, a billion here, a billion there. It soon adds up to a lot of usage. So it's it becomes very difficult to define what is monopoly. But is it is eyeballs a lot of users and time? I mean, there's only there's only four main oil companies too. So they all have they all and have three, the same number of users. Three, essentially, three wireless carriers. Right. Well, in the United I, States. from where I sit, you know, those are problematic industries as well. Although, I mean, there's even an argument though in some industries, particularly around utilities that you do have a monopoly because it's the most efficient way to deliver electricity. You don't really only want one cable going in front of your house. You don't want three. So you need a monopoly to do that. So there is an argument for efficiency in society that relies on monopoly. I'm not sure there's a need in society for a uh, algorithmic driven interest suck like Facebook. Well, I mean, what's, what's interesting to me also is sort of the, the, um, the politics. I mean, w one of the points that you made earlier, Mike, uh, in a previous conversation was that the the amended complaint comes down uh, on party along party lines, three to two, with the Democratic FTC commissioners voting to go forward and the Republicans saying no. This 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 whole antitrust area has been one where there's been is one of the few areas where there's been some agreement between Democrats and Republicans about the need for regulation, although the their motivations are quite different. I wonder if uh, Facebook had been more aggressive in managing dis disinformation on its on its own platform, you know, pre preventing all the sort of COVID dis disinformation, all the the foreign uh, sort of attempts to interfere with the election. If they had done a better good job, better job of content moderation, would we be seeing some of this, um, you know, some of this today? I, I, we'll never know, but I mean, it's an interesting thing to to sort of speculate about. Yeah, and then the final thing is that the the reason that the Republican one of the Republicans dissented was because these acquisitions had previously been reviewed by the FTC and approved, and so for the FTC to go back and say we made a mistake seems like it's going to have a tough time in the court. I would agree with that. Although it is true that um, courts themselves revisit previous decisions and decide that the law was law was wrongly decided in the right. past. And so there is, you know, there is some some precedent for somebody to look at a prior decision and say that was a mistaken decision. Now we want to make the right decision. But I agree that that's a that's a pretty significant hurdle uh, to overcome, combined with everything else that we we're talking about um, here. Well, the FTC certainly came out with their sort of fists in front of their face, and they 
seem like they're very they're they're very anxious to see this move forward. So it's, we'll see what it's, happens. It's almost an ad hominem attack against Zuckerberg. You can't innovate, so you have to buy these other companies. You know, it's 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 got that's there's a sort of weird quality about that in my mind. Yeah. You know, and to think that Google stepped right into that lack of innovation and built Google Plus. Yeah, well, Google Google is Google has has bought tons of companies. Yes, <laughs> Google has bought tons of companies themselves. I mean, a lot of their core products come out of acquisitions. So yeah, it's, their it's, motto isn't buy and bury. It's buy or bury. It's buy and bury. Yeah. Right. <laughs> All right. On All right. To the next segment. On to the yes. next se- segment. Exactly. So. Um, there were a number of things that were interesting this week to me. Uh, one of which, uh, I am not going to talk about, is the is the uh, the Facebook um, workrooms metaverse virtual reality thing. I think that that's worth uh, some discussion at some point, but um, not today. What I'm going to talk about instead was an interesting survey that Col Colrail published pretty recently. I don't know if it's this week, but it's a recent survey um, where they pulled 600 U.S. small businesses. And they asked them about a bunch of digital marketing questions, but they were specifically getting at who's doing your marketing. Is it is it is it somebody in house? Is it you? You know, a dedicated employee in house versus you? Is it is it an agency? And uh, there were some pretty interesting findings. I mean, much of it will come as no surprise, but some of it was was worth talking about. Now, interestingly. Um, only 14% of these folks were using any kind of external resource in an agency or consultant. Most of them were trying to either, most of them either had an in-house dedicated person, um, 36%, and the rest of them were just trying to do marketing on their own, spending about 20 hours a week uh, doing that. What I found, two things that were, three things that were particularly interesting, um, only, only, um, I think it was only 49% of them had a website. Uh, it was it was pretty close to half, but half of these respondents. Same, same number as in 2007. Right, precisely, <laughs> precisely. That was what was so striking. And the, and the, and these were not just tiny. These were not just you know solo solopreneurs or or small firms. These were you know some of these they didn't give this the headcount segmentation, but some of these were 200 person businesses. But only half of them said that they had a website, which is kind of an incredible thing. Um, and 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 really consistent with what you just said, David. That that this has been pretty pretty standard, you know, over the over the last year. So it suggests that this is never going to change. We're never going to get to eighty percent, ninety percent website adoption. Now, some of those people may be using alternative uh, digital presences, you know, uh, Google My Business, um, Facebook you know, or some social media site as a, as a web presence. And it's like, or a scheduling app, for example, I see that happen a lot of times with a, you know, salon, someone who has their own salon or whatever might have their, have their entire presence be, uh, you know, their, their booking. And, and uh, I think that that would, that would, if, if, if it were, if it were framed in that way, I think we would see a bigger number. So, so I think the 50% number is, is interesting, but it's not totally reflective of what's going on out in the world. But but just a couple of quick other things. Um, uh, the majority, um, the, the the number one marketing digital me- marketing method that was used was social media, and um, you know that was that was in the in the um, the sixties I think that in terms of the percentage, I, I don't have the specific number in front of me, but that was the number one method for for marketing online that people were using. Incredibly, 
only 15%, 1-5% were using local SEO or SEO, which, which, which I just find to be a, an astounding, astonishing number. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say that those two things are almost the same thing that reflects this tremendous misunderstanding about how to have visibility and Google's reliance, almost existential need for businesses to have websites, for them to do what they do, which is surface accurate information. And that those two numbers that only 50% are using SEO and only 50% have real websites just, just reflects this total misunderstanding about how people are found on the internet. And it also, though, is a, is a threat to Google. One asks, why wouldn't they, when you claim your, your business, why wouldn't they just create the Google My Business website for you just as default setting so that they would at least have, I guess, because they already have access to all that data, maybe? I don't know. But I mean, every, every, every survey has to be taken with a grain of salt, right? Any individual survey can't be seen as, as, a, as a reflection of, of, of truth, but, but they're directional. But the number, the fact that this number is so low, one five percent, is really astonishing. And what it what it what it says to me is that people are not extrapolating from their own experience, right? Everybody's using Google right. as a search engine and to look up local information, but yet they're not translating that experience into their own understanding of how to market. Google has never been good though about communicating how much reliance they put on an independent website to rank your business and for visibility of your business, right? It's only it's a, it's not known broadly in small businesses that that's how it works. Yes, I think that that's a key point is that they don't expose sort of the ha the how of all of this. Um, the, the 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 other thing that I would say about this survey that was really interesting is that um, you know a lot of a lot of the small business aggregators website web hosting platforms and traditional media companies that have turned into agencies equivalent of agencies you know have tried over the years to to deliver marketing services to, to businesses, small businesses at scale. And what this survey indicated, and I'll just read a couple of these points, is that these businesses really just didn't want exclusive focus on, on leads, on lead gen. In fact, um, that was sort of lower down the list. What they wanted was the top three things they wanted help with from an external provider, um, helping us improve customer service, recommending new technology to help grow our business, improving workflows between marketing and sales teams, sort of internal operational improvements. And, and the number four was helping us refine our value proposition, which is sort of a, you know, a sort of a, a broader brand and messaging, uh, you know, sort of a PR uh, traditional communications function. And it's only when you get below that, that you start to get into these, these traditional marketing needs. And so the, the, there's a big gap between that wish list. And what a lot of is what, what's being provided by a lot of these big sort of firms that are catering to small businesses from a digital marketing and, perspective, and a lot of small firms providing that service too. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, and I was just going to say, I think it, it it bodes well for our friend uh, Aaron Wykey's new business, Lead Ferno, uh, that helping helping with customer service is uh, you know kind of their what Leadferno's bread and butter uh, could be uh, for the agencies that adopt it as a solution. Um, so I think that that's kudos to Aaron for sort of seeing seeing this in the market uh, before before these kinds of, of studies came out. And I think Mike, the the other two points about sort of you know recommending new technology and improving workflows. You and I have been talking about these exact topics for several years, whether it was our Street Fight column or 
the Cinda conference in, in Valencia, uh, you know, it's just being able to identify technologies that play well uh, with each other and are good long-term investments, uh, I, I see as the key value of a, of a consulting firm, a digital consulting firm. And it's hard when you are a, you know, sort of horizontal media player, not to just sell what you're offering. Well, that's, that, uh, and so that, I think it's, it's just a very difficult business proposition as opposed to really developing expertise in a, in a domain and recommending the best fit um, and being that sort of trusted advisor to an SMB as opposed to just selling your, selling your hammer for the nails. There's an inherent conflict of interest that you are pointing out between somebody who's essentially become a technology vendor or an aggregator of third party technologies, you know, which are often exclusive um, and, and being a trusted advisor. You know, everybody wants to position themselves as a trusted advisor but you can't do that if you're just pushing your own solution to, to the market. And people sort of smell that. They get that. And, the, and there's a lot of distrust, mistrust of some of these companies that are just sort of coming at small businesses with a sales proposition, I think. So, I mean, I've dealt with a lot of agencies through GatherUp where we attempted to take this approach where they could use GatherUp to help their businesses improve. That was the fundamental philosophy of GatherUp. And most of them just said, how do we get more reviews? It's so it's 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 that the agencies and the owners of these agencies, top to bottom, do not take what you know John Jantz pe- preaches, which is a strategic view of the relationship with your customer. Which is, it's always a better position because it's hard to compete. It's hard to you're not going to lose somebody on price. You're going to lose somebody on service, and it's it's a much better position to be. But hard for agencies who do not have a strategic view of the world to take that in their relationships with their customers, big or small. Well, and on that on that point about price, I think in, also in this survey, there was a, a mention that people were willing to pay more for these, these strategic advisory right. services, that they would be willing to invest more money in that. But now let's 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 move on to um, to you, David. And um, uh, Mary Mellis wrote a, a really nice piece about uh, local food delivery, and you wanted to talk about that. Yeah, it was a fantastic uh, interview with uh, Clay Seaman of, I think it's called Eat Loco, uh, which is the Omaha, uh, it's, it's actually a co legitimately is a co-op of local Omaha restaurants who have teamed up to build their own delivery service, their own version of DoorDash or Grubhub or Caviar, you know, na- name the brand. Um, and it was just a very interesting, it was just a, it was a great interview. It was a really interesting uh, sort of blow by blow of, you know, how the service came together. They looked at a uh, uh, sort of Midwestern neighbor in Iowa City uh, to to use as a model for how they how they built this this concept. The uh, I think they got 40 restaurants to buy in for twenty five hundred bucks a piece to kind of get the thing uh, off the ground. And then um, there are, I believe place said there are actually no dues, uh, which is yep. uh, sort of a historic model of farmers co-ops in Nebraska, which I think is is, is kind of neat. Um, some really interesting um, data points around how they're going to market. He said that the restaurants themselves pushing this in signage and in social media and anywhere they can uh, to get their customers to use uh, Eat Loco is kind of their number one you know means of, of acquiring new customers. Um, they do have uh, you know it's an ongoing problem I think just like it is for any business right now to hire uh, at the sort of lower end of the the wage spectrum. So they're sort of putting out, you know, uh, driver driver ads everywhere they can. It's it's kind of a classic, you know, sort of marketplace problem of like, how do you balance the consumer demand with your with your deliveries, with your 
service providers. Um, but I just thought it was a really, really interesting interview. It's certainly, um, it, it gives me hope anyway, that there is a, a, a sort of small tech uh, uh, counterpoint to some of these more predatory uh, larger services. Um, I do, it, it, but also to sort of segue back to, I think it was last week's near memo, it might've been two weeks ago. Um, there is the problem of, you know, Google only working with players at scale and the default links for order online on a GMB profile point to DoorDash and Grubhub and whatever the, the major players are. So it really, you know, these guys are, are definitely up against a little bit of a competitive wall, but one hopes that, you know, if, if there's one of these in Iowa City and Omaha, and maybe this can spread to Austin and Portland and San Diego, and maybe there's enough scale with these sort of smaller providers that Google is sort of forced to open up a, a program to uh, bring in their services into into GMB. So um, I just thought it was a really inspiring interview. Uh, you know, seems like a really well-run uh, organization and kudos to Miriam for for doing such a great job of, of writing it. There up. was a reference in the article to leveraging the technology that Iowa City used with the hope that they could roll it out nationally, so that they could use a single platform, despite the co-op nature of the ownership on a per city basis. Where you, as somebody from Portland traveling to Rapid City, wherever Omaha, could then use it or use it in Portland as well. So I think their their ambitions are national, but the, the impediment that Google puts in place because of their need for scale, you know, would prevent them from becoming a choice. I mean, you can list them in your GMB as the the link, but it doesn't get highlighted the way the other. But it's not the blue, not the blue order, order online, online button. button. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it, this this also tests the sort of you know um, affinity to buy local to shop small that that everybody says in surveys that they have right. So there's. There's this sort of tension between that heartfelt desire to support local business and what's right for the community and the the sort of default mode, the Amazon impulse, which is to just go with what's easy, what the, the well-worn path that's, you know, path of least resistance. And I think, you know, these guys really, the, having the local restaurants promote this is really a, 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 a critical for them. But they have to they have to somehow build some a local brand that people know. You know they can't rely on SEO or they can't rely on being found. They have to affirmatively build a brand. I think that everybody knows about. Right. They and did those two. They also had the lucky, or I think it was lucky, that they got some PPP money to deliver food to the uh, right. under the government to people that were in need. Sort of got them going, so it gave them enough, a little bit extra money to build out their app. So now that they're really, now they're really rolling, it'll be interesting to stay in touch with them and see how it works out in the next couple years and whether it can achieve any scale across the United States. If they could be in the top fifty markets, I mean, this that is would be this a real is, win. This is, this is part of a larger problem, not just with food delivery, you know, about about supporting local business in an ethical way with technology, doing things that people have become accustomed to doing online, you know, whether it's shopping. I mean, you know, um, uh, the, the I'm, I'm blanking on the name that the, the um, April Underwood's. Uh, uh, company that's trying to sort of e-commerce enable local business. You know, there's there's a lot of these kinds of initiatives in pockets, but the the fundamental challenge is just the 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 gravitational power of these giant brands and the and the lack of access to capital 
you know, is, is a big, it, it, these are major obstacles for these companies, but it's, you know, hopefully there'll be some successes because I mean, I think this is really what we need to counteract these, these enormous, you know, the, 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 consolidation of power in these giant companies. Well, part of it, too, is the erasure of history from our memories. It's like we don't remember what a Nebraska farm co-op ran like. I, I experienced them when I joined my father in business in the early 80s, but that was the last of them. They've gone by the wayside. And it's an unfortunate sort of trend in society uh, that I think speaks to every level of education and knowledge as well as attitude and, and behavior. Well, and these... And these- these co-ops are not going to get the kind of VC investor investment. There's no 10x return here, you know. Right. right. So, Absolutely. And there's massive amounts of money in the VC and PE world. I mean, it's a whole. These are alternative banking systems with more capital than they absolutely know what to do with. Yep. So well, we tried to end on a hopeful note, but uh, well, the, 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 the fact the fact that this business exists and that they're they seem to be making a go of it and they have um, a good is, model. Is hopeful. And that it's they have helpful. a good model, leveraging the restaurants to do the that's marketing. Right. I think that's great. And the, and that it can be it's replicable, right? I mean, and they can be supportive of one another because they represent certain defined geographic markets, and they're not competing with one another. Right. So that's all. That's all hopeful. Absolutely. All right. There you go. That, thanks for listening to another near memo, and we'll see you next week for episode thirty. Thanks for joining David, Mike, and Greg. To stay on top of the latest developments in local, subscribe to our newsletter at nearmedia.co. We'll see you next week.